0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television.
1: For at least 50 years, it's been realized that uprightness or bipedality is really of, of all the characteristics that define humans and our immediate ancestors or hominins. Bipedality is really probably the most distinctive. It is from the beginning. Uh, And continuing into the present day, it's standing and walking, moving, locomoting on two lower limbs, which really sets us apart more than anything else, really, from the beginning, from our closest relatives. Now, of course, the human family tree has expanded a lot in the last 50 years. This is actually taken from a uh, figure from Wood and uh, Richmond. Brian Richmond is one of our speakers today from about 11 years ago, and I had to add a few more tracks to it for today. Uh, so new uh, tax are being added all the time and are, are thinking about these taxes changing all the time with the discovery of new material. I think most people would agree that, most people in the field would agree, that bipedalism was a part of the normal locomotor repertoire from the beginning. In fact, by definition, that almost has to be the case. If you're a hominin, bipedalism must be at least part of your locomotor uh, repertoire. And we can call this facultative Uh, which just means that you could do it. Somewhere, even down here, there's evidence that uh, some bipedality was practiced. And I think we would also, people in the field would agree, and everybody else, that by later homo erectus and certainly homo sapiens, that we had exclusively bipedal behavior or committed or obligatory. So those things are not really in question. What is in question is what happened in between the two. That is, Do we have a progression, even progression through the years of uh, gradually increasing sophistication of bipedal gait, gradual perfection of bipedal gait? What kinds of variations in bipedal gait might we have? Were there possible regressions to a less bipedal locomotor repertoire? Do different parts of the body evolve at the same rate if you're becoming better at bipedality? There's still lots of questions here that are up in the air. And it partly depends on what skeletal features you look at. So even within this one fairly circumscribed group, the so Hadar hominids, the skeletons have been interpreted in very different ways in the past, depending on which features you concentrate on. Certain features indicate an arboreal locomotor repertoire, at least in part. Others have been interpreted as indicating committed and exclusive bipedality. So really, which traits you use and what the constraints on those traits are and how they reflect what an animal was capable of doing and what it actually did do are all very important questions for interpreting the skeletal record. Um, And we're going to be talking about lots of parts of that skeletal record today. Um, beginning with a talk on the pelvis, which is the next talk. Obviously, pelvis is a very critical part of the skeleton for uh, bipedal locomotion. Lots of changes have taken place in the pelvis, as you can see just from a quick comparison of a human and a gorilla pelvis. So I hope you uh, enjoy the talks. Uh, I think there's really quite a variety here represented in terms of topics and in terms of approaches. Hopefully, by the end of it, We'll have, if not a clearer view of how bipedality evolved, at least a more complete or complex view. Without further ado, I'm going to uh, invite uh, our next speaker, to, our first speaker, to come up. Steve Churchill from Duke University, who's going to talk about pelvic architecture of Australopithecus sediba and genus homo.
2: Thank you, Chris. Um, so as the co-chair of the, um, of the symposium, I also want to extend a welcome to you. I think we're going to have a fantastic uh, afternoon of, of talks. Uh, I want to kick things off by talking about pelvic architecture. And if you look at the last four and a half million years of the evolution of the human pelvis, I think all paleoanthropologists would, re- would agree that you see some major architect- architectural changes here, which reflect uh, an improvement. Uh, in the ability of this structure to engage in bipedal locomotion, so you know most notably the pelvis gets shorter from top to bottom, the iliac blades or hip blades become uh, more flaring and more lateral. So everybody would agree this is probably about bipedalism, but that's really where the um, the agreement ends. And when you get down to the differences between the australopis, like Lucy as a group, here's a reconstruction of Lucy's pelvis, and members of the genus Homo, whether it's early Homo, like Homo erectus, or later Homo, like us, there are some major structural changes here and there's not very much agreement about what those changes mean. So for instance, in the the pelvis of the genus Homo, you find that the hip blades are more vertically oriented, they're they're more uh, curved, the birth canal is rounder and larger, the uh, pelvis itself is is more robust, it's stouter, the um, the pubic bones are more upturned, The, the ischium in the back of the pelvis is shorter, so what do these, these differences between australopis and the genus Homo mean? Well, um, uh, Chris talked about the fact that there are sort of two major views of of locomotion in the australopis, and depending on which of those two views you subscribe to depends on how you interpret these changes in the pelvis from the australopis to the genus Homo. So by one model, which we might call the arboreal model, um, the australopis were... For sure, they were bipeds when they were on the ground. But the argument is that they didn't spend all of their time on the ground, that uh, they were still climbing trees, maybe to get away from carnivores. Uh, This guy looks like he's not doing too good a job of that. But... (laughs) Uh, to get away from carnivores or they're sleeping up in the trees or they're going up there after food resources and they're feeding up there or whatever, but for some reason it's important to their adaptation that they're still climbing. And because they're still climbing, they're, they're spending some of their time on the ground, some of their time on the trees, they've got to have a locomotor skeleton which is competent in both of those things. And therefore there have to be compromises that are made. Um, so according to this model, Lucy and other Australopiths um, basically selection was constrained to the extent to which it could, could improve their skeleton for bipedalism because they had to be competent climbers. And because of this, it's been suggested that when they did walk terrestrially, they walked with a different kinematic gait, that they probably walked more like a chimpanzee walks bipedally with a, flexed, uh, a partially flexed hip and a flexed knee. So the argument goes that with the origins of the genus Homo, like this early um, Homo erectus skeleton from Africa, that uh, the genus Homo was fully terrestrial. And now this constraint is lifted, and now selection really can fine tune the skeleton for bipedal locomotion. We get changes in the pelvis and other changes in the lower limb, and our kind of bipedalism, full striding bipedalism on an extended hip and an extended knee comes about. So by this model, that would explain the differences in the pelvis between these two groups. And then, as Chris said, there's also some scientists who think, no, Lucy was a dedicated terrestrial biped. The amount of time that she spent in the trees was minimal. And, um, uh, in fact, the adaptations of her lower limb for bipedal locomotion kind of ruined her for climbing. Uh, The the, the changes down here made her an incompetent climber, and so we're looking at a fully terrestrial animal here. So then the question becomes, well, why does the hip change? Uh, And, in fact, it's been suggested that Lucy was not only a good biped, but she was a better biped than us, that her pelvis is better adapted for bipedalism than ours. And that should always sort of raise a question for people, because why should selection ever uh, favor the worsening of a structure for the job that it's intended to do? Well, the argument goes that the, the differences between the, the pelvis of these australopiths and our pelvis has not to do with locomotor changes, but with the fact that brains got big in the genus Homo and we have to pass, I say we, but fortunately, I don't actually have to do this, Um, but some of us in here have have done this, Um, have got to pass a large brain baby through this bony bony birth canal. And so, um, in order to accomplish that, as brains expanded in the genus Homo, the hip blades had to be moved, or the uh, hip joints, had to be moved farther and farther apart and there was some sort of constraint operating on the total width of the pelvis and so that requires an architectural change overall in the pelvis. So um, according to Owen Lovejoy, who's the major proponent of this model, um, the differences in the pelvis between Australopis and the genus Homo aren't about locomotion, they're about big brain babies and the architectural changes that you need to accomplish that. In a couple of papers, Lovejoy actually laid out a model explaining how these changes came about, and he basically said there are three large-scale architectural changes that occurred going from Australopithecus to the genus Homo. The first is that the birth canal got rounder. The second is that it got larger. Uh, And the third is that uh, there was an upward rotation of the pubis in the front of the pelvis, a downward rotation of the ischium in the back of the pelvis in order to increase space in the birth canal. And then he said that because of the way that the pelvis develops to, um, to, to get these kinds of architectural changes, you're going to get some secondary changes. Uh, the, the, the pubic ramus in fr- front becomes shorter. Um, The iliac blades have got to become more vertical and less laterally flared. Uh, These features called iliac pillars sort of change position and become more robust. I'll talk about those in a second. Uh, The the ilium itself, the upper part of the pelvis, becomes more robust, and the ischium shortens, all as developmental consequences of these major um, architectural changes. Well, we have some new specimens from South Africa which shed a little bit of light on this question of was it a locomotor shift or was it some sort of um, obstetric shift that explains the differences in the pelvis of these two groups. Um, this is a new species of Australopithecus, Australopithecus sediba, from a site uh, called Malapa outside of Johannesburg. We have two partial skeletons. Uh, this is MH1. He's a subadult male. He's the type specimen of the, the species. And this is MH2, an adult female. She's the paratype. And they're about 1.98 million years old, which is a really interesting time because that's around the time that the last Australopiths are disappearing from the fossil record and early members of the genus. HOMO are starting to become more abundant uh, in the fossil record. And as you can see, we've got some um, pelvic remains from both of these individuals represented. Uh, when we announced this species a year ago, all we had were portions of the juvenile male pelvis. We had the left hip blade and ischium, and we had a portion of the right hip blade. But even with those parts, we could tell that there were a number of derived features, of Homo-like features in the pelvis that were more similar to what we saw in things like Homo erectus than they were to what we saw in other australopithecus like Lucy or like STS-14, which represents Australopithecus africanus, from South Africa. So uh, we're we're starting to see some of these features and some of the things that Lovejoy had argued were a function of large brains in this australopith, but what's interesting is this is a small brain species. The juvenile male has a a brain size of about 420 cubic centimeters. He's almost adult, so if the brain were to get bigger it wouldn't get much bigger. Um, And that's on the low end of the range for australopiths. So we're seeing these changes before brain size expansion, and that suggested to us that there was something wrong with the obstetric model. Um, Now you can say, well, uh, this is a juvenile male. It's a male, it's a juvenile. What would an adult female look like? Well, about a month after we announced the species, we began to recover parts of the the female's pelvis. We actually had the pubis at the time that we announced the the species, but we found uh, uh, her hip, Uh, The upper part of her hip blade, the ilium, and we found her sacrum, and uh, that allowed us to reconstruct half of her pelvis, which we could then mirror image. Now, there is, unfortunately, the anterior part of the hip blade is missing, uh, and that required a little bit of interpretation, but we had some nice curvatures there that we could work with to kind of guide um, the reconstruction. And uh, here's her reconstructed uh, pelvis mirror image. This is a virtual reconstruction of the South African uh, STS-14 australopis specimen. And here's MH1, the juvenile male. We, we reconstructed him too, although we have a lot less to work with, and so we're not as confident in the reconstruction of him. But you can see that there are some real architectural differences here. Um, between Sidiba and Australopithecus Africanus, uh, the same would be true if I put lucy 's pelvis up there, um, and again, this is a small brained species so here 's a chart with some of the obstetric Um, uh, diameters and other diameters. Uh, This column is uh, MH2 from Malapa. This is uh, that Africanus specimen, STS-14. Here's a reconstruction of Lucy's pelvis, and this is a specimen from Gona, Ethiopia, which has been um, attributed to Homo erectus, but its it's taxonomic placement isn't 100% certain. And I just want to point out two things. The first is if we take the ratio of the width across the hip blades relative to the width between the, the hip joints, uh, this small number in sediba relative to the Australopithecus and relative even to gona um, is an indication of how vertically set those hip, hip blades are. And the second thing is... Uh, Highlighted in yellow here is just the ratio between the diameters of the the pelvic inlet in two directions. And um, this this number here tells you, relative to Lucy, that this is a rounder um, birth canal. Um, than we find in lucy lucy 's is very uh, oval and long from side to side, but the same is true of of this Africana specimen from east africa and this isn 't as round as you get in later Homo, but it is certainly a rounder um, birth canal now this is a, a, the iliac angle, which is the measure uh, between the the um, pubic ramus here and the front of the iliac blade here. And you can see in the genus Homo that the angle tends to be uh, relatively small, both because the pubic symphysis is superiorly oriented and because the iliac blades are fairly vertical. When you get to the australopis, here's Lucy and here's STS-14, that angle tends to be fairly open because the pubic rami are horizontal and the iliac blades are more flaring. Here's MH2. This is a a Neanderthal, uh, which is like other HOMO. And you can see that MH2 has got uh, an iliac angle, which is lower than what we're seeing in in the Australopis. And it's still high for what we tend to see in in modern humans, but certainly within the range of variation of modern humans. Uh, I mentioned that iliac pillar. In MH1, we see a very HOMO-like iliac pillar, at least in some respects. It's a very distinct iliac pillar. Uh, Whereas in MH2, it looks much more like the australopith condition. It's an indistinct pillar. seems to be very anteriorly positioned. So there's some variation here, where one of them looks a bit more HOMO-like. The other looks very primitive, very australopith-like. So we're not entirely sure what's going on with that. And then I also mentioned that um, uh, one of the things, the secondary changes is an increase in the robusticity of the the pelvis. Uh, and this is just a measure of the stoutness of this area right here where loads are transferred from the sacroiliac joint to the hip joint. And... Um, uh, what you can see is that members of the genus Homo, whether they're modern humans or archaic humans like Homo erectus and Neanderthals, uh, tend to have a very thick, very robust. Um, area here. You can tell also that this area is shortened relative to what you see in Lucy, and this is despite the fact that MH1 is a little bit larger in body size than, than Lucy. Um, Australopis tend to have a very, very thin and elongated area there, a very sort of gracile um, area, and again, both of our, our hominins from Malapa fall with the modern humans rather than, or with uh, the genus Homo rather than with the Australopithecus. And then the last feature that I'm gonna talk about is um, uh, this little uh, groove or sulcus right here between the hip joint and the, um, the ischial tuberosity. In the genus Homo, it tends to be a very narrow groove. So what we've done here is we've simply divided it by the diameter of the hip joint to control for body size. And you can see in modern humans and archaic humans that um, it tends to be a very, very narrow groove relative to body size. In the australopiths, it tends to be a very large, uh, long groove. And that's a reflection of the, the reduction in the size of the ischium, the lower part of the pelvis in the genus Homo. And again, the, uh, our single specimen, MH1, from Malapa, we can evaluate this in. Again, it looks like Homo rather than like Australopithecus. And this is just to illustrate this feature. Here are two specimens of um, Australopithecus afarensis from Hadar, and you can see this, this uh, sort of great distance here between the hip joint and the ischial tuberosity. And here's MH1. These have all been scaled to the same size. And here's MH1 to show you how much narrower this, this groove is. Now again, you can say, well, he's a juvenile, and who knows, maybe with a, a, a couple additional years of growth, the ischium would really, really grow, and this sulcus would become a lot larger. Well, in response to that, I can show you a juvenile Australopithecus africana specimen from Maca MLD8. This individual is of a much younger developmental age than MH1 and the groove, so here's the bottom of the acetabulum here and here's the top of the ischium here, this, uh, this sulcus is actually already absolutely larger than it is in, in MH1. So I don't think this is a developmental thing. I think the ischium really is shorter in MH1. So going back to these things which are argued to be about brain size expansion, um, in Australopithecus sediba, We are seeing a rounder birth canal. We are not yet seeing an increase in the absolute diameters of the birth canal. We are seeing an upward rotation of the pubis. Unfortunately, we don't have the the parts that we need in order to tell whether we've got the downward rotation of the ischium, so that remains an open question. Um, With respect to the secondary changes, we are not seeing a reduction in the length of the superior pubic ramus. It's still very australopith-like and very long, but we are seeing more vertical and less laterally flared iliac blades. Um, We are seeing sort of what appears to be a more robust iliac pillar in one specimen, but not the other, so that's variable. So again, we don't know what to make of that. We are definitely seeing greater robusticity of the ilium, and we are seeing this reduced distance from the acetabulum to the ischial tuberosity. So to me, it really seems like the obstetric model seems to be problematic. We're seeing a lot of these changes which are argued to be the function of brain size expansion and the need to enlarge the birth canal in a species which has got a small adult brain size. Um, now, does that mean that the arboreal model is correct? It doesn't de facto mean that the arboreal model is right. It simply means that there's, that there's a problem with this obstetric Um, Explanation for the differences between Australopithecus and Homo. However, to my way of thinking, it's sort of hard to to imagine why we're seeing these changes in the pelvis if it doesn't reflect some sort of change in the way that the pelvis is bearing loads and operating during locomotion. To me, it suggests that there is some sort of kinematic shift going on. Thank you.
1: Our next speaker is uh, Dr. Jeremy DeSilva from Boston University, who's going to talk about foot and ankle diversity in Australopithecus.
0: Well, thank you all very much for the uh, invitation to come here and speak. I'd like to move the conversation south a bit, from the pelvis down to the foot, and talk about, as Chris said, uh, foot and ankle diversity in Australopithecus. It really does need saying that there is no other mammal on Earth that walks quite the way we do. Uh, So, of course, scientists have tried to figure this out. When did upright walking evolve? Why did it evolve? And how? How have we acquired our bipedal adaptations? And central to this argument, as Chris and Steve have pointed out, has been the genus Australopithecus. Um, Australopithecus lived in Africa from 2 to 4 million years ago. You've already been introduced to it. Lucy, the new specimens of Australopithecus sediba from Malapa Cave, which I'll discuss at the very end of my talk. And again, as Chris and Steve already nicely laid out for me, there have been a number of different hypotheses to explain the locomotion in these creatures. The first is that they walked with a crouched gait, Uh, what what, uh, some call the the groucho gait, the bent hip, the bent knee, and that they had not yet acquired full upright striding bipedalism like you see in humans today. Others interpret the very same fossils differently, that these were uh, capable upright walkers and that human-like bipedalism has deep roots in our uh, our past. And others say it depends on the species you're talking about, that there might actually be a mosaic uh, or different ways of moving on two legs uh, throughout the past. I'd like to examine these three ideas uh, from the point of view of the foot. The human foot is strikingly different from the foot of our ape relatives. Um, there are a number of differences, but in, in my view, these are the biggies. Apes have a very a very small heel. They have an ankle that's well adapted for climbing. They have a flexible midfoot, something called the mid-tarsal break that I'll talk about in just a moment. And they have a big toe that can, they, they can grasp with. In stark contrast, humans have a a large heel to deal with the forces of of heel strike during upright walking. We have an ankle well adapted for walking, not for climbing. We have a stiff midfoot that allows us uh, some propulsion rather than grasping abilities uh, in our midfoot. And we have a big toe in line with the other toes. Well, how did this all happen? That's, of course, the million-dollar question. And what do we rely on to figure this out? Well, we look at fossils. We rely very heavily on fossils. But unfortunately for those of us that study fossil feet, there have been very, very few fossil foot bones. Over 50 years ago, Louis Leakey, working in Olduvai Gorge, uh, made a pretty phenomenal discovery, a partial foot of a single individual. This is the very famous OH8, or Olduvai hominid 8 foot. Uh, which consists of all of the left foot minus the heel and the toes. And over the course of the next 50 years, a whole lot of people have had a whole lot to say about this foot. (laughs) If I miss your name, I apologize. (laughs) Um, Well, if you wanted to study foot evolution, this is pretty much the only game in town for a long time. Uh, I've even thrown my hat in the ring recently as well. And you would think, That with such a complete foot, there would be some consensus, and there's not. Uh, We can't agree as a field what species this foot belongs to. We can't agree whether it's an adult or juvenile. I happen to think this is the foot of an old female robust Australopithecus. Some think it's the foot of a juvenile Homo habilis. We can't agree on the function of this foot. So we desperately need more foot fossils, I suppose... Well, researchers working in these East African deposits, uh, 2 million years old or so, uh, have made extraordinary discoveries. These partial skulls illustrated here are just a few of what was found. But the foot bones found in those very same deposits could fit into the palm of your hand. Very, very few foot bones found from Olduvai Gorge and from Kubifora. Don Johanson working in three million year old sediments at Hadar. Uh, well, he had a little bit more luck, I suppose. He found Lucy, um, but he also found many uh, fossilized foot bones, including this partial foot uh, skeleton shown on the on the lower right, right here, shown as uh, that I'm going to refer to as the as the Hadar foot. Um, huh, but the paleoanthropological gods can be cruel sometimes. Um, What is preserved of the Hadar foot is not preserved of the OH foot and vice versa. And so one cannot infer the remaining uh, anatomy of one foot from the other. Unfortunately, these bones as well are from different species and from things that lived over a million years apart in time. Now, fortunately, during those very same years, Mary Leakey and colleagues unearthed this really extraordinary set of uh, footprints of an early species of, of human that lived over three and a half million years ago, the Laetoli footprints. I'll return to these in a moment. Um, now, as extraordinary as these are, and they certainly are extraordinary, it sure would be nice to know more about the skeleton of the foot that made this, that would fit into this slipper, if you will. So, of course, in the 1970s and 80s, researchers continued to look for these fossilized bones, and they found remarkable partial skeletons: Lucy, shown on the left there, and the one-and-a-half-million-year-old juvenile Homo erectus from Nariokotome, shown on the right. But what I'll point out to you is no feet or very few feet. Lucy has three foot bones of the 52 she would have had in life, and the Nere skeleton preserves maybe one. There's one that could be a first metatarsal. In fact, the most complete foot of any partial skeleton found up into the mid-1990s in East Africa is this. Eight bones of a very fragmentary homo erectus skeleton that has been unceremoniously named KNMER-803. Um, Very little has been done with this foot, by the way. It's actually a lot more interesting than I think uh, uh, I'm I'm presenting as it here. Um, Now, the other window into human evolution is South Africa, of course, but it has fared no better in our quest for understanding foot evolution. Great skulls, even a couple of partial skeletons, but again, no feet. Now, there are plenty of foot bones that have been recovered from South Africa, but these are isolated finds. Almost all are from different individuals, many of which probably from different species. Call me crazy, but I like to think that in order to really understand foot evolution, we need feet, (laughs) not just isolated foot bones, but of course you work with what you have. And I do believe that every fossil, no matter matter how small or how fragmentary or how isolated, has an interesting story to tell. I also really think that every fossil deserves to have its story told. So we do work with these fossilized bones, usually asking the question of whether they're more human-like or more ape-like in the ways that are functionally relevant. So we can return to that list again. As we already mentioned, humans and apes have very, very different feet. So what about Australopithecus? Are they more human-like or are they more ape-like for these particular characters? Or are they somewhere in between the two? Or do we see a mosaic, with some being more human-like and others being more ape-like? Well, let's start with that large heel. Unfortunately, once again, very few heel heel bones, uh, calcanei, but there are a couple from Hadar. And uh, these fall well within the human range of distribution for the size of their heel. These are big, heel-striking individuals, in my opinion. So we can check that, I believe, in the human column, although it would be nice to have a few more. Um, What about the ankle now? Well, some of my research has looked into how the ankle is adapted for climbing in non-human apes. So here's a chimpanzee climbing a tree. Off he goes. And what really struck me when these guys were climbing is not that they climbed backwards, but that they had an incredible range of flexion at the ankle joint. They could flex their ankle about 45 degrees when they were climbing, so pretty much they could take the top of their foot and shove it up against their shin. That's pretty remarkable. Next slide. Um, if I did that, you'd be driving me to the hospital right now. Now notice, uh, this is going to leave its effect on the, bo- on the bones. Uh, this is the ankle from the point of view of the foot. Uh, on the left is a chimpanzee, on the right is a human. And notice that humans have a very square-shaped ankle joint. Chimpanzees, in contrast, have a trapezoid-shaped joint. And this helps with uh, the the forces of climbing on a highly flexed foot. Notice as well, illustrated with the red uh, arrows here, uh, something called the medial malleolus. That's the chunk of bone on the inside of your ankle. In apes, it's quite large. In humans, it's quite small. And this, I thought, was reflecting climbing on a twisted-in or inverted foot. Okay, what about Australopithecus? Well, we've got 14 ankles from Australopithecus and early members of genus Homo, and they're all strikingly human-like. They all have a square-shaped ankle joint and and a reasonably thin medial malleolus. I think Australopithecus ankles are well-adapted for walking. Now, what this means to me is that if they were still climbing trees, which many people suspect that they were, as we've heard about, um, they weren't doing it like any modern ape climbs. So what about the midfoot region now, this stiff midfoot that humans have versus the mobile midfoot you see in apes? Well, this is something called the midtarsal break. When apes lift their heel, they establish a new fulcrum right in the middle of their foot. They have a floppy foot. They can kind of fold their foot in half. Humans don't have this at all. We have a very stiff, rigid midfoot because we have ligaments in the bottom of the foot that prevent this, and we also have bones that lock together that produce a very rigid bottom of the foot. So how can we tell about Australopithecus, whether they had a rigid foot or not? Well, one of the bones that indicates to us that an animal has a rigid midfoot or not is the bone that's illustrated here. This is called the the fourth metatarsal. And the base of the fourth metatarsal in animals that have midfoot mobility and can kind of fold their foot in half have a very convex or curved fourth metatarsal base. Humans, in contrast, have a very flat, Uh, uh, fourth metatarsal base. There are now four Australopithecus fourth fourth metatarsals, and they all look strikingly human-like. They're not halfway between human and ape. They're quite human-like for this particular character. So it suggests to me that they didn't have a floppy midfoot either. Now, finally, while some would certainly disagree with me on this one, I interpret the very few isolated foot bones that we have that are relevant to the question of whether there was a grasping big toe or not in Australopithecus as strong evidence that they did not have a grasping big toe. And central to this issue are the footprints, the Laetoli footprints, that show, at least in my opinion, a prominent heel strike, a lack of midfoot flexibility, and a big toe in line with the others. And there have been two recent studies, pretty sophisticated analyses, looking at these Laetoli footprints, suggesting that they walked, whoever made these, walked with a very human-like gait. Now, I'm not arguing that australopithecus walked exactly like you and I do. Their foot bones were not exactly like yours and mine. They had longer, more curved toes than we did, and they had a little more uh, mobility in certain joints of their feet. Um, So why? Well, they may very well have still been climbing trees to some degree. Maybe they were building night nests, especially to stay away from those predators. Um, Or perhaps the infants had more grasping ability to hold on to their moms prior to the invention of strollers and baby Bjorns. That may have been a really important driving factor here. So Central to the, to the argument, of course, are these australopithecines getting at the question of whether there was more of a gradual evolutionary change in upright walking or whether these things were good, obligate upright right walkers. And, and as you can probably tell, at least from the point of view of the foot and the ankle, I tend to support this middle hypothesis that these things were quite good upright walkers. However, this was all based on those isolated foot bones. It would be really nice again to have some feet with associated skeletons. And again, right up until the mid 1990s, all we had were these isolated foot bones. And then, and then the floodgates opened. Um, first, little foot. Littlefoot was discovered in South Africa and announced in 1995. It's a nearly 3-million-year-old uh, Australopithecus partial skeleton, um, remarkable specimen. It was originally published in 1995 as possessing a grasping toe, a uh, grasping big toe. And certainly, um, if you only have these four bones, you can arrange these in a way that suggests that there is a grasping big toe. There are more bones that have been found. And when they fit in like a puzzle piece, the first toe and the second toe are right in line with each other. I don't think this thing had a grasping toe. At least, in my judgment, it refutes the hypothesis of a grasping big toe in Littlefoot. But this thing did have a grasping big toe. Ardipithecus ramidus, a four and a half million-year-old skeleton from Ethiopia. A remarkable specimen, uh, living a million years prior to Lucy, showing a, a, con- a con- just amazing foot skeleton in uh, attached to a partial skeleton uh, of, of of this female Ardipithecus. In the year 2000, Zorai Lemzaged found the skeleton of a three year old female Australopithecus afarensis, the Dikika child, a magnificent specimen, quite complete, and she has a foot. And this foot here is shown as it was published in 2006, uh, still within its matrix. It has now been fully prepped out, and I can assure you it is absolutely magnificent. The Daemonisi fossils from uh, uh, the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, 1.8 million years old, which means we finally know a little bit more about what the foot of Homo erectus looks like. And on the island of Floris, the feet of the puzzling Homo floresiensis found in association with this really unusual and amazing skeleton, LB1, of a female hobbit. So in just 15 years, we've gone from having essentially no skeletons with associated feet to having five, and now six, and seven, The specimens from Malapa, South Africa, have feet associated with their skeletons, and these are bound to get more complete as more and more fossil material is pulled from this cave site. But as exciting as these new skeletons are, and they certainly are incredibly exciting, we already know what the foot of Australopithecus looks like, right? It has a large heel, an ankle adapted for walking, a stiff midfoot for propulsion, and its big toe in line with the other digits. So we already know what the foot of Australopithecus sediba should look like. And plus, these are only two million years old, and as Steve already illustrated, in many ways these look more human-like than, uh, than, than previous Australopithecines. So if anything, these feet should look more like yours and mine, and they don't, they don't at all. First, the heel. The Australopithecus sediba heel is incredibly small, and it has this hook-like beak on the bottom, quite reminiscent of what we see in a chimpanzee, what we see in a gorilla. This does not have a big, large heel that you see in things that lived a million years prior to this. What about the ankle? Remember, humans have a square-shaped ankle joint and a thin medial malleolus, a chunk of bone in the inside of your foot, as all Australopithecines do as well, except for sediba which has a square-shaped ankle joint and this incredibly thick medial malleolus. So it's human-like in one respect, but then quite ape-like in the thickness of the medial malleolus, suggesting it was climbing uh, with a a bit of an inverted foot. This hasn't been published yet, but I'm really excited about this. Um, The stiff midfoot that we discussed that you see in Australopithecus, they align themselves with humans, is not found in Australopithecus sediba. It tends to have a convex, or at least the specimen has a convex base, Suggesting quite a a bit of midfoot mobility in this particular species. We don't know about the big toe yet. But for all of the features that we said Australopithecus was human-like, this foot is not. It's decidedly not at all. So... This suggests to me that the hominids from Malapa could not possibly be walking in the same way that humans walk today and probably was not walking in the same way that earlier australopithecines or even australopithecines living at the same time were walking either. And fortunately, we don't just have the foot, but there's the the hip, as you heard about, and there's the knee. And and, and soon we're going to present a hypothesis for how we think this thing was actually moving around its landscape. So what does this all mean? Well, it suggests to me two things. First, the Malapa hominids demonstrate, to steal a line from a colleague of ours, Bruce Latimer, who's a foot guy, he said in press recently that, based on these fossils, there is more than one way to skin the bipedal cat. And I think he's probably right, that the Sidiba material and the other material of australopithecine suggests that there must have been different ways, at least two different ways, of moving around between two and four million years ago. And second, and I'm going to end on this note, perhaps I'm being a little overly optimistic here, but I like to think that we're entering a a golden age of paleoanthropology. Isolated bones are wonderful, and they're really, really important. But for the first time, we have the opportunity to study not just isolated bones, but partial skeletons, and not just a few of them, but seven of them now. We've got Ardee and the Demonaceae fossils, and Littlefoot, and the Dikika child, and the Hobbit from, from Flores, and now the Australopithecus sediba material. And there is certain to be more that's going to be discovered and going to be published soon. This is a really exciting time for our field, a time when we're going to be able to answer some of the old questions that we've had, but we're going to be able to generate a whole barrage of new questions that we never even thought to ask prior to having these in hand. This is going to be a lot of fun. Thank you all very much.
1: Our next speaker is... Matt Torcheri from Smithsonian Institution, and he's going to talk about insights into hominin bipedalism from gorilla anatomy.
3: Hi, how is everybody doing here today? I'm really excited to be here. So, why gorillas? Why am I talking about gorillas? Well, as humans, as we all know, we like to study ourselves. And so we, we seem to know an incredible amount about our own evolutionary history and some of the faces and skeleton, and, and body shapes and body sizes that are in our own evolutionary family. But, you know, too bad if you're an African ape or a gorilla, because if there were any gorillas sitting in the audience today, they probably wouldn't be too impressed, because all we really have uh, are possibly about three teeth that might represent a 10-million-year-old gorilla ancestor. Uh, and so I think if, if there were gorillas in the audience here, uh, and in particular a silverback, we'd probably hear something like, mm which is their throat growl uh, to basically get other members of their group in line and stepping up to it. And so I think we'd be hearing something like that in terms of pull up our socks and start looking at uh, what we have in extant groups a little bit more carefully, because they're not all the same, and they're not just, we can't just lump them together. And I think in terms of what Jeremy was just talking about, I think we have a lot to learn from them still. Uh, and one of the reasons why this is interesting is because we've actually known for a long time that there are differences among different gorillas. Uh, and this goes all the way back to the 1930s when the great primate anatomist uh, and anthropologist Adolf Schultz uh, published uh, this paper on differences in, in, between mountain gorillas and western gorillas. Now, mountain gorillas live in high-altitude habitats, and Schultz knew this, whereas western gorillas live down uh, near the coast or in lowland forests so you have very different ecological habitats. But what Schultz was so uh, excited about was that he seemed to see that in mountain gorillas that their, their big toe was more in line. It wasn't entirely human-like, and he certainly didn't make that argument. But in, in comparison to the other great apes, and particularly other gorillas, they were more reminiscent. They were approaching what we see in humans. Uh, and you can see that here where he was illustrating these are mountain gorillas on the top, and these are western gorillas, and he made a lot of. Uh, uh, he highlighted the fact that the toe lengths were different. Uh, you had lots of things going on, and in particular, again, this this big toe hallux being slightly more in line with the other with the other toes. Now we've come a long way since Schultz, and we know a lot more about the the different habitats and the ecologies, the ecological habitats that these gorillas inhabit. We also know that they don't just grade from one into the other. Uh, in terms of their, their habitat structure. They are separated, and this, they have been separated for long periods of time. And as an example, we have uh, western gorillas here, which are uh, known as gorilla gorilla, uh, and eastern gorillas over here. And they're separated by quite an expanse, uh, Not and to mention the Congo River, which is a, uh, not an easy uh, barrier to cross. Uh, but as you go from these western gorillas that are in lowland habitats, we have these eastern gorillas that... Some inhabit strictly highland habitats, uh, which is the mountain gorilla. But then you also have Grauer gorillas, which used to be known as eastern lowland gorillas. But they inhabit both the highland area uh, of east-central Africa here, as well that they've expanded out into this huge lowland forest area. And that's all happened fairly recently, uh, which makes them very interesting as models to look at how differences in these ecological habitats, and in particular trees you know, how big are the trees, are there fruits, and that sort of thing, how these things can influence the morphology in terms of, you know, no one would argue that they're all terrestrial knuckle walkers. just like we probably don't argue that all hominins, aside from, say, Ardipithecus, are bipeds. But they do differ subtly in the frequencies of arboreality, and maybe there's something that we can see in the skeleton of gorillas. Now, earlier this year, I know you've all read this, I'm sure, Everyone's already read this paper, but no. As a musician, I know, you know, you, you, you write a song, you make an album, you still got to go out and push it. So I am pushing this one a little bit. This is a paper myself and my colleagues published earlier, earlier this year in Journal of Human Evolution, where we tried to re-examine uh, what Schultz had did. Now, this is actually from Schultz's original publication, and this was his entire sample, where he tried to look at the medial cuneiform, which is the bone at the base of your big toe. And he tried to look at the angles of that relationship to see whether or not their toe was more like ours and more in front and in line with the other feet, or was it more diverged, right? And so I had developed a series of techniques uh, doing my dissertation to look at morphology and wrist bones that seem to be perfect to looking at this. Because what we do is we basically are able to fit planes to three-dimensional models that we acquire from, from scanning technologies. And we can begin to quantify these ways in, in, uh, uh, very easily. And we can look at the distribution of these features. And so it's very technical. You, you get a scan model, and then uh, you color in the lines. Uh, I, I learned this in kindergarten. I think I finally was able to do it by about grade four. Some of you probably could do it a lot earlier. And, and this is what we do. We, we take the three-dimensional models and we just color in the articular surfaces. And this does provide a little bit of slop because we might all color them in a slightly different way. But generally, uh, it has little effect on, on the quantitative metrics that we're looking at. And we're able to fit planes and things like that to the surfaces and get a very, very uh, uh, easily quantify how these facets, how these articulations are oriented relative to another, as well as sort of their relative size and curvatures. So what's really fascinating is if we look at this bone at the base of the hallux that has a big impact on whether our big toe is more divergent or more in line with the other toes, what we see is very interesting, where we have these eastern gorillas, in this case mountain and Grauer gorillas over here, and then we have western gorillas as the black triangles, uh, and then the X's and the O's are, are chimpanzees. So what we can see is that Western gorillas, like chimpanzees and bonobos, actually have a more divergent big toe, right? Which is not unsurprising, because we know that uh, they live in more forested habitats than these Eastern gorillas that live in these highland habitats. Now, initially, I thought we, we were expecting to see a little bit more variation here, because perhaps Grauer gorillas were gonna be somewhat in between, because they inhabit both highland and lowland habitats. Uh, but I never get it right the first time, and I, and I screwed up, because when I went back and then looked, you know, at the time when we started this, I didn't really know that much about gorillas. And it turned out that almost all of these gorillas are highland grower gorillas. And so I got back on the plane, and I, I went back over to Europe, and I hunted down as many lowland grower gorilla skeletons as I could find. Uh, and just to give you a little tease of how exciting I think this is, here are some of the uh, three variables that really distinguish between uh, the the, uh, gorillas and chimps I showed you on the previous slide. And what's really fascinating is the lowland grower gorillas are beginning to show similarities with the western lowland growers. And so even though this change is very recent, because we know from genetic and other morphological data that eastern and western gorillas began diverging somewhere between a million and a million and a half years ago. And there's been low levels of gene flow up until probably even the last twenty to 50,000 years, right? But we've had these highland gorillas diverging in this respect, and yet now, as grauer gorillas became separated from mountain gorillas probably around 20,000 years ago, it's only within the last 10,000 years that forests have returned in this part of Africa and crept up and made connections to these highland habitats, so grower, lowland grower gorillas have basically expanded and, and uh, dispersed into this area within the last 10,000 years. And we're already beginning to pick up these subtle variations related to grasping, because they're climbing more and they're going after more fruits. Now, uh, so I even, I just want to tell a quick story because I'm fascinated by this, and unfortunately we don't have a lot of these lowland grauer skeletons in the world, and so I even made a trip to Rwanda to then try and cross the border to get into Goma and ride down Lake Kivu and go into here uh, just a few months ago. And unfortunately, because I'm Canadian, uh, there's been a bit of a diplomatic spat or something going on, and so Canadians can't get entry visas into Rwanda very easily. And even though I had a visa to go into DRC, the Rwandan said, well, no, you've already entered Rwanda, we may not let you back in. And so I was kind of stuck because my departing flight was going to be from Rwanda, so I didn't get into the DRC to look at more lowland growers, but I will, trust me. (laughs) So instead, I've started to look at some other bones. And one I think that's very important, uh, as Jeremy touched on, is is the talus, because it can help tell us whether you have more of an inverted set to the foot, where the sole is more oriented like this, or a more everted set, where it's more like an us, where it's straight underneath uh, our knees, And again, Eastern gorillas have been kind of ignored uh, in this respect. And here's an example of what a Western gorilla or a chimp, for instance, uh, talus looks like. And so here you can see it's very uneven and more curved. This is an inverted set to the foot. Well, this is a a mountain gorilla. Okay, and you can see the, the rims on both sides are very even and you're getting a much flatter surface. Right? This is very much, looks a lot more human like for those of you that know this morphology. What's also interesting, you may note that eastern gorillas seem to have slightly uh, higher degree of uh, torsion of the, of the or head, which is also more human-like. You can also see that a little bit in this specimen. So we can take these, uh, these bones, and again, by doing the color in the lines method, we can then export the surfaces and fit uh, quadratic equations to them to, to try and quantify the curvature in a way that's replicable. And so what's really fascinating, I think, is that we can see that, hey, western gorillas are far more curved than our mountain gorillas. Okay? And also, you may also note that when you change the relative height over here, this whole lateral side of the foot gets bigger. Okay? So we can use that facet uh, that articulates with the fibula, and also we can see that that facet is getting larger, is larger in western gorillas than it is in mountain gorillas. Now, i know i 'm excited enough already, but it gets even better because when you look at grower gorillas, you can see that lowland grower gorillas are beginning to diverge from the highland growers, even though you know these are still connected biologically. but as humans have gone in there in the several last few hundred years, you know, they're, they're, those corridors are getting less and less, uh, but because the lowland growers have expanded into f- thousands of, of gorillas over the past uh, 10,000 years, highland growers have been more restricted. They haven't increased in numbers. But I think that increase in numbers, coupled with the different habitat, you're beginning to see selection tinker with this morphology. Now what's fascinating is you can see in terms of that lateral side, they look like they're doing it a slightly different way than how western gorillas have done it relative to mountain gorillas in general, and that these two features aren't always going together. But you can begin to tweak the anatomy not because they're no longer terrestrial, but because the frequency of their arboreal behaviors is going up. And so when you just look at these two variables, never mind a multivariate analysis getting all fancy, just curvature of the trochlea on the x-axis and the relative size of the fibular facet on the lateral side, uh, you can see eastern gorillas, particularly the highland growers, and the mountain gorillas over here, western gorillas in the triangles way up here, and lowland growers beginning to invade that morphological, ecological space that is shared with western gorillas. So, again, why I think this is so fascinating and relevant to our discussions about the evolution of hominin bipedality is because gorillas are still here. We know what they look like, We can get their genetics. We know how they're related. You know, there's still a lot to work out on on how that's all happened over the past uh, uh, several hundred thousand years, but we have a good enough idea. And the fact that we agree that they're all terrestrial knuckle walkers, I mean, maybe they do knuckle walk a little bit differently from one another, but I don't think we need to say that the different ways that hominins walk bipedally probably weren't all that different at least in the sense that when we look at it we might want to look at how ecology and how the paleoecology and the paleoenvironment may be sort of obscuring and giving us some noise when we look at these more this morphology because if we can see it in gorillas at least over the last million years in terms of eastern versus western but when we can begin to pick it up within something that has likely occurred only within the past five to ten thousand years i think it's really exciting to see how morphology can be tweaked along an ecological morphocline. And I doubt that hominins are any different. Now, I borrowed Jeremy's slide from the Sadiba paper to highlight this, and so I hope, I hope you don't mind, but I, I, uh, I thought this slide really illustrates it well. Uh, and this was in the supplementary material of their paper, showing a number of hominin tali, and noting that, hey, there's tremendous variation in the torsion angle of the head, Which in part is related to when you look at these lateral and medial rims, you have to orient them so they're in the same plane. So when one is higher than the other, it does kind of, it influences this a little bit. But in particular, in the grooving of the trochlea, again, which relates to more pronounced or less pronounced curvature. Now, we can throw our hands up in the air and say things like, you know, Taylor morphology is so variable, it doesn't tell us anything. Or we can say, you know what? when we actually look across apes and within apes, maybe there are signals there that tell us something about this. Now, this is not saying, you know, just like I wouldn't argue that a, a, an eastern, a western gorilla is not a terrestrial knuckle walker. But I might argue that, hey, you know what? There's tweaking going on there that's related to a higher frequency of climbing. And we may, we may argue against, you know, based on this sort of gorilla model uh, of whether or not it what its relevance is for looking at at hominin bipedality, because let's admit it, bipedality is very different from knuckle-walking, but at least they're both terrestrial. And at the very least, I know, if there were a gorilla in the audience, he'd probably say at least an encouraging... (laughs) So thank you very much.